And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat yet. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you're seated, I'll introduce myself. I'm, I'm Brant. I'm one of the members of the team here at Christ City. And uh, I preach here about half the time. Uh, you'll see me fairly often if you're new. So it's nice to, nice to see new faces out there. If you are new this morning, we welcome you. Um, I'm excited to bring the word to you this morning. It's, it's my joy to do it. And as we begin, I'd ask that you pray with me, that we ask God to help us uh, in our endeavor here. <clears throat> I'll give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. God, we just come before you um, right in line with the psalm I just read. Lord, that we would seek you, that we would find you, that we would rejoice, even as your word is spoken, Father, uh, as we fellowship and sing together throughout the rest of the gathering. We just ask that you would you would come into this place. You'd work by your Holy Spirit to help us to, to see and to savor and to delight in your glory and in your goodness. Although we look to you, we need you to do this. Uh, we ask for your help in it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I, I was thinking about something, and I wanted to share it with you guys. It's just this idea. <clears throat> it's that, that hoping wrongly hurts us. Hoping wrongly hurts us. Atul Gawande writes in his book, Being Mortal, about his first experience of explaining the, the risks of a procedure with a terminally ill patient. And the way that, that they had a possibility of an intervention that might help this patient. Uh, there's a possibility they could repair some of the damage that was happening as the cancer invaded his body and, and went to his spinal column and they could maybe refix some of those things. But as Atoll came into his patient's room, this nervous, kind of sweaty-palmed resident explaining the risk of this procedure for the first time to this sort of a patient, he knew from his vantage point that the best thing for this particular patient wasn't actually surgery. But instead, loved ones surrounding him close and being near to him at his time of death. Yet when he was offered the patient... When he was offered the surgery, this, this patient whom uh, Atul calls Mr. Lazaroff when he writes about him, um, he 
didn't go for what he had previously talked about and, and foregoing some of these late-term, very in, invasive interventions, but instead, when offered even a little semblance or a glimmer of hope of some kind, he seized it. He seized it. And Atoll writes about him. He said, I believe then that Mr. Lazaroff had chosen badly. And I still believe this. He chose badly not because of all the dangers, but because the operation didn't stand a chance of giving him what he really wanted. His continence, his strength, the life that he had previously known. He was pursuing little more than a fantasy at the risk of a prolonged and terrible death, which was precisely what he got. Now this sermon this morning, it's not a sermon about cancer. It's not a sermon about suffering. It's not a sermon about life and death per se, but it is a sermon, it is a sermon about hope. About hoping rightly and hoping wrongly. And today my worry is that you and I actually are in a situation that's very similar to the situation of Mr. Lazaroff. And it's similar not because we're in hospital dying of cancer, but it's similar because each of us are always presented in this world around us with various options, various lifestyles, various decisions that we could grab hold of and pursue that offer us or claim to offer us the good life. They claim to offer us what we need, what we want. But all of us, like Mr. Lazaroff, are in danger of missing the salvation we need and hoping in the wrong thing. And we're not the only ones that have done this. This is not a unique problem to us here in 2019 in Vancouver. We're going to look at the Bible this morning. We're going to look at the Word of God. And we're going to see this triumphal entry story. And in that story, we're going to see, on the one hand, people who have misplaced their hope and who are deeply offended by a Savior who enters into Jerusalem to die on a cross. And then on the other hand, we're going to see something incredible. We're going to see the salvation that God had planned that is worthy of every ounce of our hope, even when it isn't what we expected. Even when it isn't what we expected. So as you look at Luke 19, 28 to 40, I want to consider three things with the, uh, this morning. Our need for salvation, our various expectations, and the glory of the cross. So salvation, expectation, and the glory of the cross. Let's look first at our need for salvation. And let's read again verses 35 to 38. So not the whole text, just this portion. And they brought it to Jesus. And it, of course, is the donkey that Emelina, or that, uh, sorry, that uh, Andrea, that read for us. Sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting even who read this morning. Uh, the, at the beginning of, beginning of the, the time here. Um, it's a donkey. They brought the donkey to Jesus. Some comic relief for you this morning. <clears throat> and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So first, if you have no idea why we're talking about these things today, why we've broken off from our regular Galatians series, it's because today's, of course, as we all know, it's April 14th. It's, it's in the church calendar, a day called Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is a Sunday that precedes Good Friday. So Easter, Good Friday, where we remember that Jesus died on the cross. And it also precedes 
Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, we remember that Jesus was raised. And it's called Palm Sunday because three of the four gospel accounts we just read from Luke, but the three others that we didn't read from that also record Jesus' life and what he did and uh, when he was here on earth, they record the way that the people didn't just put their cloaks on the ground and their jackets, but they also put their uh, these palm branches. They cut branches from the trees and laid them on the ground in kind of an, an ancient uh, red carpet treatment for royalty. But we should be clear, too, that celebrating Palm Sunday doesn't mean that we're a people that just really love palm fronds. You know, if, if the best thing that you remember from, you know, maybe a day of visiting a church a long time ago was the way that there are palm branches on Palm Sunday out on, out on the stage, that's not really what Palm Sunday is about. We're not about palm fronds. Palm Sunday is the day that we remember the way that Jesus, the King of Kings, was greeted with the crowds, by the crowds, and given a royal welcome as he entered the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem. It's about the King of Kings coming into the royal city. And as he enters Jerusalem in this story, we need to know, we need to realize that Jesus has been now in ministry for three years. This is not at the beginning of his ministry. This is at the end of his ministry. And all throughout his ministry, he's been doing these incredible miracles. He's been uh, healing uh, diseases and doing incredible things. He's been teaching his disciples about what the kingdom of God's like. About what it's like to live under the reign of God. And this thing, the kingdom of God, is a really important concept all throughout Jesus' teaching. And what we know, even though we live, I think, in, in a democracy, we don't live in a, democracy, in a monarchy per se, I think we realize intuitively that a monarchy or a kingdom needs royalty. In this case, a kingdom needs a king. And prophecy after prophecy in the Bible, they point to Jesus as the king who would come to bring God's kingdom to earth. God's rule on earth in a lasting way. That's why, for example, Jesus rode on a donkey's colt. There's this ancient symbolism where uh, an old, ancient king wouldn't ride a bulletproof uh, Rolls Royce. They would be on a donkey. This is a symbol of royalty coming in. And it's also the way that, also the reason why Matthew and John quote a prophet in the Bible. So in the other accounts, not this one. Matthew and John, they quote a prophet in the Bible, Zechariah about the way that Jesus rode a donkey. And they quote this about him, coming into Jerusalem on the donkey, donkey in chapter 9, verse 9 of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, the king that was promised. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The triumphal entry brings together so many of these elements of different prophecies in the Bible and this hope for what God alone would accomplish. And the promise the crowd knows is that when the king arrives, when he gets here, all that is wrong will be made right. All that is wrong will be made right. God, who alone is good and glorious and wonderful, he would make his presence known with his people. They would be with him. It would change the way that things were from their experience of suffering to experience of glory and of salvation with the king that God sent. That was the hope of the first Palm Sunday. That's the hope that we're talking about here, the hope of the first Palm Sunday. And fittingly, for all this expectation and hope, Matthew, John, and Mark, again, not, not Luke that we just read, but the other three. You might wonder why we read Luke after all, if I keep quoting the other guys. <clears throat> but Matthew, John, and Mark, they even record the people and the way that they shouted, a certain Hebrew word as Jesus came into the city. 
They shouted Hosanna. And Hosanna in Hebrew is this word that means save us. So Jesus is coming in. They're saying, Jesus, save us. Save us. So let's stop for a second and let's bring that back to, to Vancouver. Can you imagine what that would be like if it happened in Vancouver? What if a ruler came to Vancouver that we all expected, that we all hoped in, that we all wanted to make things different? And we started shouting, save us to that ruler. It would look like revolution, wouldn't it? You can imagine him landing on the plane, him or her, I suppose, landing on the plane and, and the royal red carpet being rolled out to, to usher them from the plane and into the motorcade and then to wind their way up the 99 slowly as people sang and maybe dance, maybe we get real festive. And, uh, and then we start to maybe create different symbols of some kind of a uniquely imperial Canadian rule here on earth in Vancouver. Does anybody get nervous when they hear me talk like that? Like, isn't there something that's, that's profoundly nervous-making? I don't know the word, but, but causes us to be uncomfortable with that, this idea. Why is it that, that Jesus entering Jerusalem didn't make the crowds nervous, but it makes us nervous? I think the reason is that those crowds knew their need for salvation in a way that we don't. They had a visceral salvation need that caused them to welcome the coming ruler and not to be nervous about him they saw who he was. A short history lesson will show you why, though. This is why they were primed to receive this ruling figure. 600 years before this, Israel had been crushed as a kingdom, and the people were exiled to Assyria and then to Babylon. Then 70 years later, the first of them were allowed to return home and to begin rebuilding, and then you'd have these subsequent waves of returning exiles, bitter fighting, and rebuilding happening. But they were still ruled, ultimately, by outside powers, even at the end of all of that. They weren't free. And even then, when Israel got on their feet through a group of people called the Maccabees, um, they came 200 years before the triumphal entry, and they brought a period of freedom for the Jews. Still, things were never quite right. And soon after the Maccabees, even this brief period of freedom was ruined by Roman rule, which is what's happening right now in Jerusalem when we're reading about the triumphal entry. They're under Roman rule. So what we need to realize is that these were a beleaguered people. These were a downtrodden people. These were a deeply suffering people. That they, they were used to foreign rule and domination. And they had a visceral salvation need because of it. And it wasn't one-dimensional either. It wasn't as though, you know, we, they had some hope in a political figure and that was it. You know, the political figure will come. That's all our hope is for. No, it was this idea that the political figure, figure would usher in a better life across the board. That the political leader would lead to more justice, lead to more wealth, lead to prosperity, lead to health even, and flourishing as humankind in a way that I think we can identify with and long for. Because I think it's the case that even though we're in a different time and place in these crowds, that, that we need saving too, if we stop and think about it. Objectively, I think we're in a more peaceful political climate than they are on the one hand, and that's probably true. But on the other hand, I think we still see cracks in our own society and our own politics. Apparently, Canada's not corruption-proof, we've learned recently, right? And, uh, and we think that, that maybe even at the municipal levels, we're not corruption-proof. There's, there's lots of things that, that we would 
be grieved by, I think, happening even in our own city. Or if we look a little bit further south, we can also see our, our need maybe as we look at other people. We look at our United States brothers and sisters, and we think about the way that their country is moving, and we wonder, are they on a long-term path of peace and prosperity and greater cohesion as a society and health, doing what's right in this world, or are they doing something else? Or we could wonder maybe about global unrest that we seem to read about all the time in our newspapers, right? Different political struggles and battles. And we wonder, is this going to go this way forever? Are we going to live in this moment of peace and prosperity that we currently experience forever? Or will it come to an end? Will the ideas of globalism on one hand and and kind of a, a nationalism on the other, will they eventually come into conflict? Will superpowers like China and the United States and Russia and others continue to struggle and to struggle again and to to bring things away from the current moment of peace into something else. Or on the other hand, we could just think financially. Are our financial systems stable? Are our habits of spending and consuming things that will last for forever, moving us into greater and greater prosperity in this world? I think the answer overwhelmingly is no. Or what about our own lives personally? Maybe we should have started here. What about our lives relationally? How are we doing? What's our need like? What about our society as a whole? Is it healthy? Is it in a good place? What about our needs for health in our personal lives today? Or our needs for financial freedom and stability today? And then if we stop and we think for a moment, okay, maybe, maybe I'm fine, Brent. I really don't see any of this landing on me. I'm actually doing pretty well right now today. Uh, if, even, if you, even if you feel that, what if you project out 10 years? Or 20 years? Or 30 years? Or even 50 years? What will your needs be then? One theologian once said, if you haven't yet suffered, the only reason is that you haven't yet lived long enough. And then ultimately, no matter how little we might feel our need right now, when the phone rings with the, the news of personal tragedy, everything comes into focus, doesn't it? Everything comes into focus, and we realize something's wrong. Something is wrong with this world. It's broken. It's broken. You know, Vancouver may have a veneer of health and prosperity and wholeness over our everyday experience, but we need to realize, brothers and sisters, that it's a veneer. That you scratch the surface and you find something wrong. Whether first century Jews in Jerusalem with palm fronds in their hands or 21st century citizens of Vancouver, we need salvation. We need salvation as humankind. We need salvation, but we expect it and we look for it in very specific ways, don't we? Look with me at our next point, expectation, and read with me from Luke chapter 19 again, and then verses 37 to 38 again. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So the disciples here were were deeply hopeful that Jesus would be the solution that they longed for. They were deeply hopeful that he would bring the salvation that they dreamt about. But even though they recognized that he is the king, we need to remember something. We need to remember what 
was written in the words of Daryl Bach, the professor of the New Testament. He wrote this. He said, the king is entering the city to the people's cries of joy. But cries that within a week will become wails of pain and disappointment. There's going to be a reversal here. If we look at the whole book of Luke, we look at the rest of the Gospels, there is going to be a reversal from the situation of rejoicing to a situation of weeping. Why? What did the crowds miss? What did they expect from Jesus? Well, if you think about it, in the way of that illustration I opened with and the reality that Mr. Lazaroff faced, the disciples, I think they saw the external manifestation of the problem. They saw the symptoms of their political situation, of their everyday suffering. But in setting their hope on removing those things that were happening around them through a political leader, through Jesus, they underestimated the heart of the disease and the depth of the disease. And look how ugly this is when they, when they underestimate that and they, and they miss it because of their expectation. They, they want salvation. They see, they've seen their needs for it, but they want it on their terms. They want it on their terms. As long as the doctor meets the felt needs, all is well. But as soon as he prescribes a course for their good that isn't what they had in mind, they reject him. That's what's happening here. The crowds ultimately had no place for a crucified king in their minds. But I think that on one hand, you and I aren't that different than the crowds, are we? Because we too struggle, I think, to discern between our felt needs on the one hand and our real needs on the other. And I think it's deeply offensive to us when somebody comes along and says, hey, here's a solution. When actually that solution that they presented is not what we had in mind. It wasn't the salvation that we had hoped for, and it wasn't being executed the way that we had imagined it would be. And that leaves us in a place of, of disappointment and even offense, I think. I think we do this all the time. I think we have expectations for salvation. We have a certain plan in our hearts and our minds about how that ought to look. Maybe for you, it's, it's better education in this world. Maybe you think, you know, just some more education, and it's going to fix the problem. Maybe it's, you know, we just need to be better people. We need to work a little harder. It's going to do it. It's going to be the recipe for salvation that we need. Maybe better sanitation, a better economic system, more hard work maybe. Or maybe when you look at your own life and the problems that you're experiencing right now, you have a prescription, a recipe of salvation that you think will fix all that you're experiencing right now. Maybe you think that if you just put more hours in at work, less hours in at work, it'll fix your problems. Maybe you think, if I move into the city, all will be right. Maybe you think, if I just move out of the city, you know, then it's going to be okay. Maybe you're looking for cheaper rent. Maybe you're looking to just manage your emotions a little bit better. If I can just get a handle on how I'm feeling all the time, that will, that will be the solution I need. That'll save me. Maybe it's health-wise. If, if I eat a certain diet, that'll lead me into the joy and the good life that I need. We, like the crowds, I think, misdiagnose the disease just like they do. We place our hope in any number of treatment plans all the time that won't really get to the center of what's going on, the center of the problem of our human hearts. And like the crowds, whenever we're confronted that we've placed our hope in the wrong thing, it can be really ugly. It can be really ugly. Right now, they're shouting cheerfully, but not on Good Friday. 
So on the one hand, we can look at this text and we can see that there's this expectation that the crowds had for salvation to work out a certain way through this King Jesus. But on the other hand, they're not the only ones that had expectations. The other guys in the group in the story that we just read that had expectations are the Pharisees. And their expectations were that they just wanted a different sort of savior than the one that came. They expected a different sort of savior than the one that came. Their primary error was, if compared to the situation with Mr. Lazaroff, is if you imagine Mr. Lazaroff walking into the doctor's office that first day with some problems. And then when he saw the doctor, says, oh, it's you. And then leaves. You know, I, I, wanna, I want salvation, but I want it in anybody other than you. You're not the one for me. You're not the one that can fix me. Just look at the way that, that Luke talks in 19, chapter 19, verse 14. And the way the people said this. We do not want this man, that's Jesus, to reign over us. Just real simple. We do not want this man. Not any man, right? This man. Somebody else will do, but not this one. Or in the words of John chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, where John writes this so eloquently. He says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. That's Jesus. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. I think the Pharisees were offended by Jesus. They were slightly embarrassed by Jesus, the one that they should have loved. But again, I don't think that's that different than you and I experience in our lives. We can be embarrassed. We can be offended by those that we ought to love. In my own life, this has happened. In my own life, this has happened. I'll tell you a story. When I was a kid, we didn't have a lot of money. I was part of a big family. And, uh, and the family vehicle was serviceable, useful, fairly helpful, but hideous. It was, it was, it was a big vehicle, right? So it's, it had to be to fit our, all the kids in it. And so it was a big red and white GMC van. Super cool car to drive around in when you're 16. Really, really great. And we weren't particularly clean people. And maybe I should put that emphasis on me. My parents were probably a lot better than most of us kids. And the good news is that if you drove the van off the road at some point, you'd know that you wouldn't starve because the, the carpet of fries was pretty thick. You know, like you, you, you'd be okay for a while. <clears throat> but we had, a, we had this van and I can't tell you how many times we drive up somewhere and I would be stricken with embarrassment about my family. But the ironic thing is that today... Today, I feel a lot more embarrassment and shame about this story of embarrassment than about that van. Why? Because I love my family. I love my family. I see the way that I should have loved them then and not been embarrassed by them. should have rejoiced that God had given this great family to me that I'm so thankful for today. But I didn't. I had these foolish young, uh, teenage, proud perceptions and expectations about how reality ought to be, and my family was not living up to it. And I was offended by them because of it. The Pharisees' reaction wasn't any different. They were offended by the one they should have run to and loved and worshipped. Their God had come to them in human flesh to fix all that was wrong with this world. God had come to them in human flesh to dwell with them, to fix what was wrong. And they rejected him. They were ashamed of him. Well, let's, let's turn this a little bit more to ourselves. Are, are we like them? Are we like the Pharisees? Am I like the Pharisees? Are there ways that the Jesus of Scripture embarrasses 
you? Are there ways that the Jesus of Scripture offends you? You wish that you had a Jesus that was just a little bit easier to bring out into the workplace. Not like this one. Maybe you wish you served the intellectual and the philosopher Jesus. You know, the one that keep up with your intellectual friends and speak the, the language that they speak. Or maybe you wish that you served the spiritual Jesus who loved all things spiritual and was a little bit less exclusive. It would fit in a bit more in Vancouver and you could add whatever you want onto the side. Maybe you just wish that you served the, the woke Jesus. You know, the Jesus who walked the line of speaking the language of the culture a little better than he does. A little less talk of hell and judgment and sin, please, Jesus. Thank you very much. A little bit more talk of the marginalized and third-gendered in our intersexual culture that we experience every day. Or maybe you just wish that you served the Tony Robbins Jesus, who would kind of come around you and affirm what you got going on and, and give you some tools to just better yourself. Or maybe you just wish ultimately that Jesus was a little bit less like the Jesus of the Bible and a little bit more like you. A little bit less like you, Jesus. A little bit more like me. Thank you very much. Whatever the case, what we need to realize here this morning is that Jesus doesn't save us our way or by being what we want him to be. He saves us as he is. And who is he? Perfectly good. Fully God. Fully man. And he saved us the way that he intended to, through a cross. And the result of that recipe is a salvation that's more glorious and good than we could imagine or expect on our own. It's the salvation of a God who imagined these things and gave them to us, not us. But look with me at our last point, the glory of the cross and the salvation that God has planned. See Jesus' answer to the Pharisees in verses 37 to 40. His disciples began to rejoice, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed are peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke them. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. The disciples and Pharisees failed to see in Jesus creation noticed. Jesus' words, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That speaks the way that all creation was groaning, was expecting, was longing for this Savior to come exactly the way that he did come. They were expecting a Savior to enter Jerusalem, to die on a cross. To destroy Satan, sin, and death forever. When we zoom out beyond the crowd's disappointment, beyond the Pharisees' embarrassment and jealousy, it wasn't that their views of salvation were just too great and Jesus didn't live up to them. It was that their views of salvation were far too small, far too little. At the heart of all of our problems is a root. And the Bible says the root of our problems isn't bad government. It's not an unjust social system. It's not even our health the Bible claims that the root of all these things is the evil that resides in our own hearts. It's our sin. And that Jesus came to fix the problem of this world at the root. To change everything once and for all. So why did Jesus die? 
Because for us to be forgiven and given a salvation more glorious than we can imagine, he had to. Our sins against the holy God demand our death. When we reject, when we reject Jesus, when we reject what God has said is good, when we don't do what we, sh- when we do what we shouldn't, and when we don't do what we should, the primary offended party isn't your neighbor, it's not your mother, it's not your friend, it's the God of the universe the most pure and holy and good being ever to exist. And because of that, our sins, however petty they may seem to you in the moment, they're not small. They're infinite sins. They're measured against who you've sinned against, an infinite and good God. Our sins are repugnant because they're committed against this pure and holy and good and loyal and loving, admirable God that we ought to love and to worship. Our failure to worship God as we were created to is the root of all that is wrong in the world. That's the Bible's claim. Our failure to worship God is the root of what's wrong in this world. And because God is perfectly just, it's not just like he can, he can't just turn a blind eye to you in your sin. Right? It's not like he even has it as a perfectly just being. He can't just look away and say, well, I'm just going to ignore those things. No, those things must be dealt with. To pay for our sin, to right all that is wrong, and to bring us into the relationship with God that we were made for, someone had to pay that price. Jesus had to come forward and pay that price. Look at these following texts to see what we're talking about here, to see the way that Scripture talks about it. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, the Bible says this about Jesus and his sacrifice for sin on the cross. For our sake he made him, that's God, to be sin. Jesus, who knew no sin. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So that our sin can be dealt with and forgiven and replaced with the righteousness that Jesus has earned for us. He had to die. Or 1 Peter 3.18, look at this text. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus, perfectly good, died for us, the unrighteous. Why? to bring us to God, to pay the penalty that our sins deserve, to bring us into relationship with God. Or Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. It's one of, the, one of the premier passages in the Bible about Jesus' death on our behalf. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he, Jesus, was pierced on the cross for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus went to the cross because he had to. Salvation was not possible any other way. He had to bleed. Jesus had to die so that you and I don't have to. So we can be forgiven. So we can experience this goodness of a life with God. But what was the result of that death? Are the events of Palm Sunday just some epic tragedy? Are they a a bittersweet conclusion to this life of Jesus? That, oh man, well, I guess he had to and now he's dead. That's too bad. No, not at all. The rocks had it right. This was the path to glory. 
Jesus entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as a prelude to the cross was gloriously right and good and worthy of all of creation's admiration and celebration and joy because of what he set out to do, to suffer and die where we should have. Look at the way author and speaker Joni Erickson Tata articulates this truth. She writes this, For all of eternity, Jesus will be honored as the slain lamb. The sufferings of Jesus will never be forgotten. Unlike us, he will always visibly bear his wounds to the universe. And for that, because of that, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will enjoy a cacophony of praise and worship as never before. The sacrifice and suffering of Jesus was of such massive worth, such supreme value that God's righteousness will shine even brighter because of it. God was able to rescue sinners, redeem suffering, crush the rebellion, restore all things, vindicate his holy name, provide restitution, and come out all the more glorious for it. And we could add, because of the cross. Because of the cross. Not in spite of it. Our richest texts of scripture that praise Jesus, they do so not in spite of Jesus going to the cross. They do so because Jesus went to the cross. Look at Revelation 5 verse 12, where we read this. Worthy is the lamb, again, who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Or look at Philippians chapter 2 verses 8 to 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the path to glory. The path to glory is the cross. Now, as we close, I want to consider something with you. Because, because here's the rub. There is a really good reason not to embrace Jesus as your Savior. It's this. It's to embrace him, to give up our expectations for salvation and receive the true salvation, is to die with him. It's to die with him. What does that mean? Well, first off, let's get out of the way. We're not a weird you know, suicide cult here at Christ City, right? So it's, it's not that. But what does it mean? Well, dying with Christ is dying to yourself. It's letting go of everything that you hold on to and that you've misplaced your hope in. And you're instead saying, Jesus, give me you. Take my expectations. Take the, the money I was dreaming of, the new job I was hoping in. Take the relationship that I had set my desire on. Take all these things that I thought would satisfy and give me joy and be the center of my life. Take them and give me you. I want you. You and you alone. I'm willing to give these things up. Palm Sunday has this lesson for all of us, and it's this. God doesn't just ask us to find our lives by pursuing a false hope of a salvation of our own imagination. God asks us to die to ourselves and to find our deepest desires met and satisfied in King Jesus. 
die to ourselves and to find life eternal in him. To find life eternal in the one who loved us when we were still sinners. Who is sanctifying us now, purifying us for the day when we'll stand before him in glory. Spotless, without sin, eternally in his presence. You know, what Lazarus needed was to heed his doctor's advice, not to fight his disease any longer, but to have his loved ones come around him and to die well. That's a pretty hard pill to swallow, I think. But it's the same pill, in a sense, that you and I are called to in this text. Death with Jesus Christ is the right path to salvation. So where are you this morning? And what are you going to do? Are you going to try to keep hoping in what will inevitably fail to save you? Or can you let go of that and trust in faith that God has done what none of us could by sending Jesus to save us? Not in spite of a cross, but because of it. Pray with me, would you? Heavenly Father, we, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it's a word that exposes our hearts, that cuts us deeply. Lord, you wound us, you say in your word, that you would heal us. So Lord, I ask that, that, that there would be a power by your Holy Spirit right now that would be pressing these words into human hearts to wound them. To confront their pride, our pride. To, to peel our, our fingers off of the thing that we were hoping in and to place it instead on Jesus. Lord, would you do this? Would you save us? Would you show us how gloriously good you are? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.